Welcome to the King's Church Amersham podcast. For more information and resources, go to www.kca.church. Father, we thank you for your presence in our lives. We thank you for your goodness, your kindness, your faithfulness to us through all the seasons of life. Father, we bless your name this morning. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to be with you again this morning. And this morning, we're beginning a new 10-week series, which will take us all the way up to Advent, believe it or not, We'll be looking at the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached. We've got a couple of guest speakers in between. We've got Gavin Calvin next week, as Paul has said, and Neil Bartlett will be back with us later in the autumn. But the rest of the time, our focus will be here, going through the text of the sermon as recorded in Matthew chapters 5 through to 7. Now, you can also find a version of it in Luke chapter 6, but it's Matthew we usually think of when we hear the title. And the tag, Sermon on the Mount, was given to it by Augustine in the commentary he wrote on it more than 1,600 years ago when he called it a perfect standard of the Christian life. Now, there have been many different interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount over the years. Some have seen it as the high point of Jesus' great moral teaching for all mankind. Some, like Luther, have viewed it as an unattainably high standard, like the law of Moses, designed to bring us to a realization of our own inadequacy. Others have seen it as an impossible ideal that's never actually meant to be lived out seriously. You can't even attempt that. Some have thought it was a higher standard of ethical living that was meant just for the clergy, not for so-called ordinary Christians. So good luck to Paul Thomas. There's many ways you can view it. All you have to do, look at Wikipedia. You'll see all sorts of interpretations, some weird and wacky and some more mainstream. But some of these views do reflect the fact that Jesus' words do indeed require of us a lifestyle that it would be far easier to explain away than to actually attempt to live up to. But here's the key to understanding the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, it is indeed a life to be lived out. And it is, in fact, livable. It's not meant to depress us by being impossibly out of reach. Oh, what failures we are. But it's addressed to Christians, to the people of God, the people into whose lives the kingdom of God has spectacularly broken in, who are now decisively under new management. Crucially, people who have the power of the Holy Spirit within them to help them live radically different lives and who have grace in abundance from the Father through the Son to cover all their shortcomings whenever they fail. Yes, it's to be lived out. It's to be taken at face value just as Jesus teaches but by people like you and me who have God's own transforming power within them to make the impossible possible. Our God who is for us, remember, not against us who's with us to help us succeed, rather than mocking us with impossible targets and then finding fault with us when we fail. 
who forgives us freely. Whenever we get it wrong and say, sorry, Lord, messed up again. Who says, I'm with you. You can do it. But without the Holy Spirit, you've got no chance. This is the lifestyle, you see, of the kingdom of heaven. Not of any human society. Oh, yeah, now, yes, if, if they could live that way, that would be wonderful. God's truth is universal. Society would be blessed. But the truth is you couldn't manage it just for a day. Love your enemies? Huh, no chance. Even if I did agree it was the right thing to do. Turn the other cheek so you can hit that one too. You're having a laugh. Not get angry with my boss, even inwardly, when he's so ridiculously demanding. Not even an involuntary glance as that stunning blonde walks past or that nothing left of the imagination music video flashes up. Not even a glance, come on. But with the Holy Spirit, with your Father on your side and without any need for fear of failure, suddenly this kingdom living can become not only possible but even attractive because it has the character of God running right through it. Jesus is effectively just telling us, be like your heavenly father. Be like me. That's the key, you see. This is normal, spirit-empowered Christian living. And while, yes, we're all works in progress, and while, yes, we'll certainly sometimes get it wrong, nevertheless, we can get it right. And with his help, we will do so more and more, day by day, year by year, and he loves to help us get it right. There's a context, you see, to this sermon, this teaching that Jesus gives. In Matthew 4, just before the sermon, Jesus hears that John the Baptist had been put in prison. And the text says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And it says, he went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So the kingdom of heaven has come. He announces it. He demonstrates it. And now he explains it. What does it mean in practical terms? And both Matthew and Luke are very clear in their different accounts. There are large crowds there. He sees the crowds. But he begins to teach his disciples. Looking at his disciples, he says, dot, dot, dot. So when he says, for example, you are the light of the world, he's not talking to the crowds, but to his disciples, even though the crowds are listening too. And when it says disciples, there's a lot more of them than 12. Luke makes that very clear. And although they don't yet have the Holy Spirit, although they probably don't get it straight away any more than they understood the parables of the kingdom of heaven that we looked at a few weeks ago, nevertheless, they are the ones Jesus is calling to live this kingdom life. He's not simply giving good moral advice to the crowds. But to the disciples then, and to us today, he says this is how you are to live. When my kingdom breaks in, when it bursts into your life, when you accept me as your king and your Lord, when the love of God fills your heart, when the Holy Spirit becomes a spring of living water inside you, welling up to eternal life, this is how you are to live. And with my help, you will be able to do it. As moral teaching, 
It's a non-starter. <laughs> Pray for those who persecute you. Forgive those who sin against you. Go an extra mile when someone forces you to go one. Who even wants to try to do all that? But when the kingdom of heaven comes, when you're a new creation in Christ, this is a sort of new kingdom living that is to be our daily diet. That's the Sermon on the Mount. But, although he's not directly addressing the crowds, he's most certainly talking to them as well. You see, this is like Jesus' manifesto launch. They've heard him preach this good news of the kingdom. They've seen him heal many people. Okay, I'm impressed so far, but what's it all about? What's your message, Jesus? What is this kingdom then? There are a lot of wandering preachers about. That John, he was good until they locked him up. So what's your USP? What are you about, Jesus? And so he tells them. This is his launch. Now he has their attention. This is what I stand for. This is how you're to live in the new kingdom I'm proclaiming. And if you like what you hear, well, come along, follow, listen. There's plenty more I'll tell you as well. You see, most of what he says in this sermon is pretty practical stuff. It's incredibly challenging, yes, but it's not hard to understand. There's not much here about salvation or about repentance. There's nothing actually about the Holy Spirit at all, even though he's everywhere in it. There's not much deep theology, we might say. It's all pretty accessible at this stage. The deeper stuff comes later on. But this is an unspoken invitation. This is my kingdom. This is my manifesto. Come along if you want to find out more. And the one thing you can be sure of is that almost every part of it is incredibly, radically different from anything they would have ever heard before. Now, that would be true for any listener from any culture. Our problem is that familiarity has, to some extent, softened the force of the teaching. Take the command to turn the other cheek. I mentioned a minute ago, for example. You see, as a phrase, in that brief form, it's part of our common language. But what does Jesus actually say? Do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. You want to hit me? Sure, then this side as well. Now instantly, I feel myself wanting to explain. Oh, apply it. What does he really mean? And there may indeed be some contextualizing required here. Or perhaps I just feel the need to, to water down Jesus' words to, to something more, well, reasonable. Maybe we'll look at that in a later week. But I do know that Jesus himself lived it out. Matthew 27, 30, the soldiers are mocking him before his crucifixion. It says, they spat on him. They took the staff that they had put in his hand as a mock scepter, and they struck him on the head again and again. Jesus lived it. But it's shocking teaching. And if you're a Jew, as his hearers were, well, then it gets even more shocking. Six times, he says, referring to the Old Testament law, you have heard it said, but I say to you. So you imagine, if you've been steeped in the law of Moses from your earliest days, from mini church, through kids' church, through the youth, the law is what gives you your religious identity, gives you your cultural identity. More, it even gives you your national identity. It's central to everything you are as a Jew. 
And now some guy from the local synagogue, yeah, you've seen him, he starts teaching. He's a good guy, all right. He's always the first to volunteer to stack the chairs away afterwards. He's always warm and encouraging to talk to, but he's had no special religious training. And now he says these, well, crazy things. I mean, I've done pretty well all my life. I've tried to keep the law. I've at least got the main bits right. But if I listen to him, it sounds like I've been wasting my time. I've never heard the law explained like that before. Who is he to tell me I've got it wrong all these years? Don't be like the pagans. Do better than the Pharisees. Be like my Father in heaven. How on earth am I going to do all that? And it all starts off with the Beatitudes, which are our text for this morning. Now, Beatus is a Latin word for blessed. So the Beatitudes means the blessednesses, which is a bit clumsy. I guess that explains why they're called the Beatitudes instead. But it just means these eight times, or nine, depending how you count, Jesus says blessed at the very beginning of the sermon in chapter 5. Now I said earlier on, the Sermon on the Mount, it's like Jesus' manifesto launch, his declaration, this is what I'm about, this is what life in the kingdom of heaven looks like. Now every manifesto, every launch, it needs a headline, doesn't it? A big idea to grab the public's attention, a soundbite for the 10 o'clock news, a slogan that's memorable, that sums up what you stand for. Make America great again. Let's get Brexit done. Well, I think that's what the Beatitudes are. They're punchy and memorable. They don't have any commands in them, unlike most of the sermon. But as an attention grabber right at the start, well, they're brilliant. Because even more than anything that comes later, they declare with shocking boldness, Virtually everything you thought before, all your values and aspirations, you've got it the wrong way around. What I'm telling you is completely different. It's, it's the reverse. It's upside down. In the kingdom of heaven, everything is different. And if you want to get life right, if you want to be those who are blessed, then this is the way to live it. And we've called this series that we start today People who know how to live. Because that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. A totally different way of living that everyone is called to, but only God's kingdom people, empowered, changed by the Holy Spirit, have any chance of actually achieving. And remember, this is coming straight from the mouth of the author of life himself. The one who said, I have come so that you might have life. The one about whom God's voice was heard saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. You want to know how to live your life? This is the way. If we're wise, if we listen to Jesus, if we accept and embrace and seek to live out what he teaches us as he helps us, then out of all the people on the face of the earth, we will be the ones who are able to say, truly, we are blessed. So let's listen to the word of God in Matthew chapter 5. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Great. So, first of all, what does it mean, this word blessed? To us, it perhaps sounds a bit spiritual. You know, bless you, it has religious overtones, as if it's a religious word, a bit removed from normal life. Well, the actual root of the Greek word is exactly the other way around. Blessed means you're enlarged, you're enriched, you're made bigger and better in some way, in real life terms, because the gods have smiled on you, because their favor is upon you. You're to be envied, you're to be congratulated, well done you, wish I was in your shoes, that's blessed. To be blessed is to be better off in some concrete way that really counts because of the favor of God. And these people who are blessed according to Jesus, well, in every case there's a sense of contrast. It's not who you'd expect. It's not those people who are blessed. No, it's these people, and I'll tell you why. It's more explicit in Luke's account, where in each time there's a clear duality. Blessed are you who are poor, but woe to you who are rich. But the sense of that contrast is here in Matthew too. And it's always the wrong way round. You see, in those days, wealth was often seen as representing specifically the blessing of God. That's why you're rich, because God has blessed you. And even today, wouldn't we? We'd say, well, it's better to be rich than poor. If you gave me the choice, I guess we'd all, all go the same way. Money is better than poverty, as Woody Allen said, if only for financial reasons. No, Jesus says, it's the other way round. But you see, God's way so often the wrong way round, isn't it? The king of kings, born in the squalor of a cattle yard, laid in a feeding trough. The greatest victory in the cosmos, won by a near-naked man, nailed helpless to a wooden cross to die, while thugs jeered at him and a thief shouts insults at him. He who loses his life will find it. It's all the wrong way round. The first shall be last. The greatest among you will be the servant of all. This is the kingdom. He who humbles himself will be exalted. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. We could go on. We could fill a book, not just a sermon. So here in the Beatitudes, the unlikely ones, they're the blessed ones, the opposite ones. And Jesus isn't trying to be clever. He's simply telling the truth. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Not simply poor, as in Luke's version. Matthew adds the words in spirit. So we don't have to talk about money today. Phew. Although the gift day is next week, remember? But the word for poor in both versions, it means bent over, crouching like a beggar. Blessed are the spiritually destitute, some versions have it. 
Blessed are those who are all too aware of their desperate need of God. Not those who are full of themselves, who think they're okay. Rather those who are empty, spiritually broken, and who know it. They're the blessed ones. It's exactly like the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. The Pharisee who thanked God that he was not like other men, who thought he was rich in spirit, we might say. And the tax collector, who wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he, Jesus says, this one, not the Pharisee, he went home justified, right before God. And here's the killer line. This parable, it says in verse 9, Jesus told it to some who were confident of their own righteousness and who looked down on everybody else. Ouch. See, if you're spiritually bankrupt, if you haven't got two spiritual beans to rub together, and you know it, head bowed, all you can do is beg for mercy. Jesus says to you, congratulations. You're blessed beyond words. For yours is the kingdom of heaven, all of it. All my Father's riches belong to those who come to him empty-handed, broken by guilt and shame, knowing that they have nothing to commend themselves but simply fling themselves on his mercy. That's the very doorway to the kingdom, Jesus says. And once you're in, if you can still remember that by yourself you're nothing, if you can avoid all the temptations to puff yourself up and to be somebody, then my Father can bless you more than you can ever imagine. It's not those who think they are rich who are blessed. It's those who know they are poor. But that only works. That only makes sense in the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Again, that doesn't make any sense as a general statement in life. What on earth does that mean to the man in the street or the first century Jew on a mountainside? It's nonsense. There's nothing blessed about mourning, about the grief of loss, betrayal, bereavement, about the tears that come from the deepest place of the human heart. But Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Bring me your pain, he says, because in me there is healing, for even the deepest hurts this broken world can inflict on you. There is comfort to be found in the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, as Paul calls him. You've turned my mourning into dancing, the psalmist writes. If you have suffered so greatly, if the pain is so raw that you think you'll never laugh again, and I don't say this lightly, Jesus says in Luke's version, blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. There is comfort and healing in this life through the love of God that you cannot find anywhere else. And when this short life is done, when you stand before him as he tenderly wipes away every tear in that place where there is no more crying, you will most certainly laugh again. Blessed are those who mourn in my kingdom, Jesus says, rather than those whose lives are pain-free. Because just as a mother knows how to comfort the toddler who's grazed his knee, 
so that he forgets the pain and feels instead the love. So when my father binds up the brokenhearted, you will know even more deeply than you ever thought possible how great his love for you really is and how precious you are to him. Blessed are the meek, Jesus says. Not the pushy, not those who shout a lot, who know how to use their elbows to get to the front. Not those who grab and make sure they get what they want, fighting their own corner, making sure they're not overlooked. No, no, not them, but the meek. Now, there are two people in Scripture who are called meek. One is Moses in Numbers chapter 12. It says he was the meekest man on the face of the earth. It's the same Greek word as is used here. And the other is Jesus, who described himself as meek and humble in heart. It's also part of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, the one we usually translate as gentleness. It's the same word in the Greek. Humble, gentle, submissive. That's meek. But it's not weak any more than Moses or Jesus was weak. It's like a horse that's been broken in, strong, majestic even, but willing to be ridden and directed, submissive to its rider. I was meek. A few weeks ago, there was a police car followed me down White Lion Road, joined me when I stopped at the petrol station, wanted to talk to me about my speed when I'd been going down Woodside Road. He was the rightful authority, and I submitted to him. I wasn't afraid, but I was quite properly in his hands, and I was meek. And in my kingdom, Jesus says, it's the meek who are blessed, not the pushy and the grabbers. If you submit to my Father, if you entrust yourself to him rather than competing and pushing to advance yourself, trust him as your provider, as the one who can exalt you if he chooses to, but he may choose not to. If you're content to leave such things in his hands and be a servant as the master was, then Jesus says, you'll inherit the earth. Because with a heart like that, you become very blessable in God's eyes. Now these promises are in the future tense. You will inherit, just as there will be comfort for those who mourn. No doubt some of it will be in this life because God will actively look out for you. God will ordain his blessing upon you. And some of it will be in that part of your eternal life that begins with death, when you will receive as a son and as an heir a new heaven and a new earth. But you will be blessed. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, many of us would naturally interpret this in an individual way, as if it's talking about personal holiness. But I think Jesus is talking more about God's righteousness, his justice, as characteristics of his kingdom rule. In the relationships and places where we have a voice, we can influence in some way our communities or wider society. If that is what you hunger and thirst for, if you have your father's heart for justice and the right values of his kingdom in the world around you, rather than hungering for your own appetites and self-indulgence, if that's your hunger, then you'll be filled. You'll be satisfied far more fully than if you pursued your own agenda and got everything you wanted. You'll be blessed You'll be filled because you'll see his kingdom come. 
both in this world to some measure and most certainly in the next. You'll be filled because you see something of what you are hungry and thirsty for and because even more than that, he will satisfy you with himself as you seek his kingdom. You will be filled. Now let me say at this point, these different beatitudes are not meant to apply to different groups of people. They're not different categories. Which one am I? They're actually all meant to apply to all of us who are in his kingdom, who accept his rule in our lives, who are led by the Spirit. We should all be poor in spirit as a, as a mindset. There will be times for all of us when we will mourn. We should all become meek as his Spirit grows in us, that fruit. And we should all hunger for his kingdom righteousness to come wherever we can touch the world with it. But this point is, is perhaps more obvious with the next three Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful. Once we had not received mercy, as Peter says, but now we have received mercy. So now, just as Jesus says in the parable of the unforgiving servant, so now we should show mercy to others who don't deserve it, just as God has shown it to us. That's not the world's way, but it is the kingdom way. And as we do that, we'll be blessed. We will be shown mercy. Our daily experience will be the grace of God, his mercy on our lives. Whereas if we don't, then he will withhold the daily grace of his forgiveness from us. Jesus picks this up later in the sermon. Blessed are the pure in heart. Those who ascend the hill of the Lord with clean hands and a pure heart will receive blessing from the Lord, as it says in Psalm 24. Now, I don't think it's so much about being sinless. As we said, we're all works in progress on that score. I think it's more about integrity, transparency, a single-mindedness. Blessed is the man, it says in Psalm 32, whose sin is covered, not who is sinless, whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit, no evasion, no covering up your sins or mistakes, no guile or manipulation to get an advantage. No, no, God won't bless that. But openness and integrity before him, and before others, about the bad and the good in your life. Then you will see God and you'll know him in your daily life. Just as one day you'll see him face to face. Blessed are the peacemakers. Not the warmongers, not those who seek power, not those who seek to benefit from divisions and factions and conflict. Fighting your corner might get you an advantage in the world, but it gets you nowhere in the kingdom. He's the God who breaks down barriers, who brings people of every conceivable difference together in his family, who bestows his blessing, it says in Psalm 133, wherever brothers live together in unity, just as he himself enjoys the perfect unity of the Trinity. And he's committed to us the message of peace, the ministry of reconciliation, be like your father. That's the message of the sermon. Like father, like son. And when you do that, you will indeed be called sons of God. Who will call you that? Well, I think it's the father himself. Like Jesus, you too will know his blessing. You too will be his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. 
When you sacrifice self-interest for the sake of unity, when you spend yourself just like he did so that others might know the peace that he alone can give. And finally, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed to be congratulated, to be envied. Wish I was in your shoes being persecuted like that. Really? Yes, really. See, I love it that he repeats this last beatitude with with extra emphasis, that he expands on it in verses 11 and 12. Yes, really, he says, that's how you should respond. You're genuinely blessed when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil about you because of me. That brings it home a bit, doesn't it? I'm guessing not too many of us would genuinely relate to the word persecution. Though I expect some will, and I expect that will change for more of us. But insult you, deliberately lie about you, misrepresent what you stand for because you're a Christian, perhaps a few more of us could raise a hand there. But quite seriously, he says you should rejoice and be glad. Lucky you! Why? Because it's the spiritual thing to do? No, 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 no. Because great is your reward in heaven. Honestly. See, he knows. And Paul knew too. Paul, no stranger to hardship and persecution. He writes, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You remember Peter and the apostles when they left the Sanhedrin in Acts 5, after they had been flogged. They left rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. Now that's the work of the Spirit in them, I'm sure, this rejoicing. I'm sure the joy of the Lord was poured out on them, maybe with a little whisper. Just see what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, I'm not belittling it. For sure, you need all the help and the strength of the Spirit. You need the support and encouragement and fellowship of brothers and sisters when you're really going through tough things for Jesus' sake. And you have to endure and you have to persevere. And it can be really hard. Make no mistake. But Jesus knew that. Even so, If you could see as I see, he says, if you knew what I knew, you too would agree. You would rejoice and be glad right in the midst of it because great is your reward in heaven. Your inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Truly, you are blessed. Wait and see. And that's true of all these Beatitudes. If you could see as Jesus sees, with the objective and eternal truth of heaven, you would agree, blessed am I in all these ways, at all these times, however ridiculous it sounds, however crazy it seems to the natural mind. True, for some of it you have to take the long view. It isn't all in this life, though some of it most certainly is. But blessed are all those who live a life that is revolutionarily different, that demonstrates the kingdom of heaven here on earth as the Spirit of God is at work in them, truly, they will receive infinitely more than anything this world has to offer.
and they will not be sorry. Let's pray. Psalm 86, we read, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Paul writes in Ephesians, Take great care as to how you live, not as people who are unwise, but as those who are wise. Father, we do ask that today, in these weeks ahead, please open our hearts to receive your truth. Help us that we can accept it and believe it and embrace it. Help us so that we can be wise, that we can live as pleases you, that we may live according to your kingdom design for your people. Help us so that we may indeed be people who know how to live and that we might be truly blessed just as you intend. Thank you for listening. For further podcasts or information, go to www.kca.church.